not as easy as you sitting in Boston and saying, oh, I would love to go and buy a Chateau Lafitte 1990, like six cases of that. That's almost an impossible proposition. Hello, this is Camille Broderick, the host of Camille's Demi Hour, a show always educating on wine, healthy and delicious food, and the talented people of Nantucket. We will hear from those who create so many of these wonderful delights and experiences on island, from the chefs behind the line to the sommeliers on the floor and the gourmet artisans in between. Welcome to Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5, the Nantucket NPR station. And today we are speaking with Jennifer Williams-Bulkley from Vinalytics, a new software that helps collectors simplify their wine. You have an interesting background, and I definitely want to be able to let the audience learn about how you got into this role and became sort of this product software wine innovator you were originally in the banking world in London. Do you want to talk about your, your background and some of the stuff that you did? Sure. I uh, was in London from 1998 to 2011 and was working in the finance field, uh, both on the research side as well as the trading side. And while I was living there, I became very interested in learning more about wine in a more educated, structured format. So spending all this time in the city of London where drinking wine on a daily basis is sort of a a regular um, way of living life, uh, I needed to learn more about the world of Bordeaux and the world of Burgundy. So while I was... um, Was that for your clients too and just being out and having to learn more about the atmosphere there? They're the second consumer in the world of wine, is that correct? Yes. I mean, culturally, the British are... um, uh, famous for their love of claret slash Bordeaux, and um, it's a great, I'll just call it a great drinking culture, but I felt like there was a lot that I didn't have exposure to when I was living in the U.S. and growing up here. So this is a great opportunity for me to spend more time to understand the market while I was you know, working, um, doing what I also love, which is uh, trading and researching and finding interesting investment opportunities. So while I was in London and uh, doing my daily thing, I also started to take courses at the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, and that's another mechanism similar to the, the Court of, of Master Sommeliers, where you can educate yourself um, up to a certain level, and then that feeds into the Master of Wine program. So I managed to pass my diploma from the Wine and Spirits Education Trust in early 2012, and that's when I had the opportunity to combine uh, what I had done in the past in finance with, with starting this business. Some people say that you catch the wine bug. Was there a moment where it became not just of knowledge gathering, but really became something that you fell in love with? So interestingly enough, the first bottle of wine that I had was a Gaia Barbaresco, and that was when I was working in New York, and we were basically writing up an S3, which is basically a, a document that you fill out to file for an IPO or a secondary offering. And so while I was in the lawyer's office, this gentleman ordered it up in the heyday of what used to be. And uh, for me, that was kind of an aha moment where I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a really incredible experience. And ever since then, uh, I feel like that's really what tripped me over to, to keep learning and to be interested and to understand why this particular wine and this particular vintage and this particular producer uh, were really uh, just 
different than anything I'd ever experienced in my class. And I was very young, too. You know, early 20s uh, is really a great time to, to start to understand why there's a, a difference in, in between a, a yellowtail and a, and a Gaia barbaresca. And how would you describe that? It's almost like I... It's like travel. It's like um, art. It's like a great food. You, you go through these flavor profiles and you get there and you realize that there's this complexity in the glass that is expressive of, of a place. And over time, that, that breakdown and that journey is um, something, that's something you want to enjoy over a half hour or an hour or a perfect meal. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with Yellowtail. Yellowtail is a perfect commercial product, but I think it's there meant to be consumed and enjoyed in a short period of time, and, and it, it just is what it is, uh, fermented juice in a glass. And Gaia is not. And Gaia is definitely not. <laughs> Gaia is a famous producer in uh, Piedmont area, and it he's probably one of the most expensive, some of the most expensive Italian and northern red wines in the world, famous for their Barolos. So what was the connection when you were studying markets and investments and then seeing how the wine world was an opportunity for investors? How did you put that together? Was it the stocks? People, Some people don't know that the wines are traded. So do you want to explain that a little bit more? London has always been the, or historically has been the primary market for Bordeaux to sell into way back into the 17th century. And historically, you would always buy one case of Bordeaux to consume and buy another case to then sell to buy the next vintage. And it also runs on a bonded warehouse system. So there's a mechanism to basically track wines that come into the country because once they leave that warehouse, then you have to pay a tax to the government. So that allows for the tracking of the inventory to be much more efficient and effective because there's this basic secondary market that exists just because of the the structure of the marketplace. So around 15 years ago, the first exchange was developed. It's called the London International Vintners Exchange. And it looks very similar to other trading platforms. Uh, It's all trade. There are 400 of us who trade on this exchange uh, around the world. There are about 25 of us that trade on it in the U.S. And basically, it's bids and offers of wine, basically investment-grade wines, so wines that age over time and will appreciate up to a certain point. And it really allows for the market to develop and to find wines that you would probably never be able to find otherwise because they're going through the distribution system. So for me, having traded uh, stocks and bonds and, and research, researching companies and economies for so long, the ability to then analyze wines and understand why certain vintages had a higher price or a lower price, and why certain producers were in higher demand or less or less demand. Less demand. A lot of it is just that it's supply and demand. But the really interesting thing is that when you start to almost take the emotional element of wine out and put it in a structured format, you can make a more informed decision about the value of the product, and it also helps you understand why you need to take care of this product. Because at the end of the day, this is the one quote unquote collectible that goes to zero. Wine is essentially a food. So if there's a way that we can protect and preserve and understand and put a framework around it, then all the better for the wine world and all the better for the, for the consumer. So now there are six exchanges in London. Um, a few are peer-to-peer, so collectors can trade amongst themselves. Uh, and then the largest is LiveX. And it also has a logistical framework on it. Nine times out of ten, the quality of the wine, where it's been stored, uh, how it's been looked after is exceptionally high relative to just having those wines 
you know, in your home seller or having gone through the distribution system here in the United States. So it's also a very, a very good place to tap into some very high-quality, well-looked-after wine. So can anybody join the Vintners Association, the exchanges, live accesses, all open to the public? No, LiveX is only trade, so you have to actually work in the wine trade and be recommended by others in the wine trade. There are other platforms that are just collector-to-collector, and they're subscription-based. And there are so five of those that you can tap into. You just have to, to pay the fee. The other sort of caveat to that is the wine does have to be in a bonded warehouse where it doesn't work. Um, there are a few other exchanges in, in France. And in the U.S., probably the closest thing that we have is a thing called WineBid, which is basically an auction, an auction platform that you can have the wines uh, picked up or delivered to them, and then you, know, you just hope that, that what you bought is, is what you bought, and it's in relatively good shape, but there's really no mechanism. It's, it's more of a buyer beware market. If you're just tuning in, this is Camille Broderick, the host of Camille's Demi Hour, and we are speaking with Jennifer Williams-Buckley. She is the founder of Vinalytics, a new software to help simplify wine for collectors. We were talking about there are certain ways to trade wine on the market and the supply and the demand. You can see what is popular. So one of the reasons that Bordeaux is as popular as it is as a collectible is that there's a lot of it. Uh, The average chateau makes 25,000 cases of wine a year, which in the wine world is a lot of wine, and it has the ability to age very well just based on acidity and tannins. And the underlying demand is as much a function of supply as anything else, but the quality of the wines can be and are exceptionally high, and you also have vintage variabilities. So when you think about or we look at the vintages that are in top demand right now, Certainly the 82s, 86s, 89s, uh, where there is still availability in the market, they're hard to find, but if you, if you spend enough time talking or looking at auction houses or looking at the exchanges or looking through collections, you'll see those wines. Uh, the 90s, you've got 95 and 96, and certainly 1990 is a tremendous vintage as well. Move into 2000s, and you've got uh, 2005. 2000 is also a very good vintage. And then you get... Uh, into 2009, which was the top vintage potentially ever out of Bordeaux. There were 2,200 point rated wines, which is extraordinary. Wow. Uh, and then you have 2010, which is another beautiful vintage, and they drink very, very differently. You know, t- 2010 is approachable now. 2009 is still very closed, and you know, some of those wines have drinking windows that don't even open until you know, 2025, 20, 2030. So it, it, it just has that longevity. And, and if you think about Bordeaux and the ability to age, that means that you can enjoy it over many years. But you can also put it in a place where if for whatever reason you're no longer interested in wine or maybe someone's passed away or you'd like to put that in uh, your trust and estate, you know, these are wines that have value over many, many years as long as they're taken care of and managed and understood. The other issue is, of course, something like Le Pen, who, uh, as a producer, only makes 600 cases a year. So the demand for those wines is extremely high, same as Petrus, uh, at least in the French market. And, you know, to, to have those, to own those, to drink those is a really unique once-in-a-lifetime experience for many, many people. Burgundy is a very unique market in and of itself, just the complexities of how many producers there are in different parts of land, and they're just made in really small quantities, which is both a function of the climate 
as well as just the nature of the wines themselves. Uh, they just don't make enough of them. And they, while they age well, uh, the vintage variability can um, have a really big impact on their, their ability to age over longer periods of time just because they're so far north. Back to Italy, where many of these wines, particularly out of Tuscany or Piemonte, can age as well, 30, 40, 50 years. And in top vintages, they are well worth holding on to. The U.S. market is very interesting because it is mostly allocated off of mailing lists. So while they're very small production, there's also this mystique of having access because you're on the list. Um, so it's kind of a built-in exclusivity. The quality of the wines can be very high. Uh, California is a very warm place, so they have not as much vintage variability, and there is some discussion as to how long they do age. But certainly there are probably, I don't know, 10 to 20 producers that collectors want all over the world, and, and our, you know, demand is rising for them, for sure. So who are these collectors? Uh, are these the one percenters? Are these just your average guys who might want to begin a collection? Who are the people that you've encountered? So the vast majority of our clients are relatively financially successful individuals who have the means and interest in understanding what wine brings to the equation of, of their lifestyle, how, how it adds value and how they can experience that. Many of these wines start at $100 a bottle and can go all the way up to $5,000 a bottle. So there are caveats to who can actually play in the space, but the vast majority of my clients are genuinely interested in understanding the producers, the regions, why they age, and having that experience. So I don't think it's necessarily any different than other lifestyle assets, whether it be top collectible art or jewelry or classic cars. But I also feel like we're starting to see this shift from that demographic into the the younger generations understanding why there is this unique aspect of wine that is part of the farm-to-table movement and is part of giving back and being more experiential with your your food and your wine and your travel, how something like this can transform relationships and can transform an everyday food experience uh, is going to expand much more so than just hitting a point in your life where you've got a lot of disposable income and that's what you want to focus on. I feel like the demographics and the, and the demand are certainly breaking into the you know, late 20s, into the early 40s. Uh, where it's as much about having the experience as having a lot of wine. Right. So it's not just about collecting what's popular and having it in your cellar and saying you have it, but it's about the experiences that will come with opening these bottles and the financial reward down the line. And that's where where you fit in. And so your software, it's an inventory system, meet trending informational update. After starting a, consulti- a, con- a wine consulting business in early 2013, I was beginning to bring on clients and understand the market in a much more uh, hands-on way and was really driven by drinking window. And one of the things that people really want from us is, what should I be drinking now? How much do I own? Where is it from? And to be informed about that in a very non-emotional way, but also be able to look at it and say, oh, I remember when I 
was in Bordeaux, and I remember when I had my first experience with that, or I was traveling with my wife, and this is when I met this bottle. So we've tried to combine a very easy way of saying, okay, I should be drinking this wine in the next five years, five to ten years. Then you can spend time looking at where it's from, who the producer is, uh, what it looks like on Google Maps, like how your whole collection plays out in a visual journey, and then you can get what it costs and what the performance of that wine has been since, uh, since release or since you bought it or over the last three, six, or 12 months. And by putting it in a framework and a very easy user interface, it, it, it tells you um, that you should go down and pull that bottle out and enjoy it now. Uh, and that's somewhat different, if not very different, to the current systems that are in the marketplace, which are and have been in the market for over 30 years, Inventory management is a difficult thing to do. It takes a lot of time. The data is hard to structure. Things are pronounced in different ways, spelled in different ways. Every region has its own way of thinking and looking at a wine, and we wanted to make that process very easy. We don't want the wine to sit in your cellar to the point where it's no longer drinkable for anyone. We want to cause you to act and to have that, that lifestyle experience, and that's really what the software was designed to do. If you're just listening, that is Jennifer Williams Buckley, the owner of Vinalytics, a software to help simplify your wine and your collection. So what are some of the wines that people want to buy and how do they do it? Do they use you to go to the trade um, into these markets? Can they just go to a retail store? So the wines are French Bordeaux, French Burgundy, uh, exclusive producers out of Italy. And normally these wines are released two to five years after they've actually been bottled. Uh, The UK market is relatively quick and transparent, so if the 2012 vintage is released, you'll drink that somewhere between four and six months after in the UK market. In the US, we have kind of a longer process, and we have a three-tiered system where it comes in through the importer, then goes to the distributor, then goes to retail, and then gets to the end consumer. These are for wines that are not directly sold from California or Washington or other spots. Which I think a lot of people don't understand that it takes a lot to get that bottle into your hands. So if you can can skip some of those steps. So many middlemen that you as a retailer have to develop that relationship with the distributor. And in certain states, that distributor may not have the relationship with that producer. So it's not as easy as you sitting in. Boston and saying, oh, I would love to go and buy a Chateau Lafitte 1990. I'd like six cases of that. That's almost an impossible proposition, uh, particularly in a market where it's been much more challenging to get wines into the marketplace. So for us and for um, our clients, we really want to help them find wine and we will provide access to wine. So we feel like we have a very good sense of who the top retailers are in the country, who the top auction houses are. We keep a really close pulse on what wines are being auctioned, and we have a very good sense of where there are large collections. We trade a lot on the exchanges for our clients, uh, both in the U.K. and the U.S., and we're certainly starting to see more retailers in the U.S. directly plug into the U.K. market just to get access to things that they wouldn't otherwise have. So it's very challenging. Where do the auction houses get their wine? Straight from the trade and the exchange yeah, as well? so the, the vast majority of auction houses are through consignment. So uh, Sotheby's, 
Hart Davison Hart in Chicago, K and L on the West Coast, uh, Zaki's uh, on the East Coast too. They have collector dinners and they know who these guys are, and they know that at some point there's going to be an inflection where they've just bought too much wine and it needs to get back into the marketplace. But obviously, it would be lovely if we could get to the point where collectors could find each other in a much more efficient way, and uh, you know, identify opportunities to, to bring the two parties together in a way that is safe, secure, transparent, uh, you know, and easy to transact. You've been on Nantucket several times as a part of the Wine Festival. Before the show ends, I'd love to hear some of your experiences on island uh, with the Wine Festival and what the wine community is like here. I have two top experiences in, uh, I mean, I have a lot of lovely experiences in Nantucket. It's a wonderful place. And I feel that the community there is incredibly supportive of the food and wine experiences. They just it's a big focus, and it's a, it's a highly powerful experience for anyone who has the opportunity to go to all the many different places. So a few experiences. I first met um, Chateau Angelus at the Wine Festival uh, four years ago now, and uh, it was just a very, very rare experience. So Jean-Bernard Grani, who's the cousin of Hubert, was there, and I was at his dinner, and we just drank the most incredible vintages in this beautiful home with the sun setting, and we developed a relationship. And JB, as he's called, uh, kindly offered to come and taste through five vintages at my home uh, with, with clients. And that was an incredible experience. I mean, he, he doesn't, the, it's very rare that we get top producers to come into the Boston market and do private events. And uh, for the people that were in that room, it was powerful. So for me, the ability to connect directly with wine producers and with wine and with the food experience is, is one of the things that Nantucket just does at the top of the world scale. I mean, it's just phenomenal. Uh, and then you have other experiences where I have clients out there and, and different wine stores have been able to connect directly my clients to great wines. We just call, we ask, they make it happen uh, if they're going to be out there with their family. And then, you know, there's later nights at Crew where, you know, the top, top collectors in the world are there with their private wine and... You know, he opens up his 1950X and shares a, shares a glass with you, and, and that's an incredible experience. So I, f- I feel like the community there is really doing the best that they can for driving the conversation about why wine matters, why looking after your wine matters, and why the whole lifestyle is as much about being on island as enjoying all the, the amazing things that, that the island provides. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Some of my most... Uh, great food and wine experiences have been here. So I, I second all of that. And the people do support that enjoyment aspect, for sure. The beer pleasure and hedonistic factor is, is present as well. But thank you, Jennifer, so much for being a part of the show today. It was wonderful talking to you and to talk about the future of wine and where it's going in, in the sense of collecting and trying to invest in your own uh, your private collection. So thank you very much. And I hope to see you next time you're on island. Thank you. We'll have a glass of wine. That'd be fun. Excellent. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Camille's Demi Hour on Nantucket's NPR station. Tune in next weekend, Saturday and Sunday at 1.30 p.m. Cheers. And I would like to thank my sponsor, Nantucket Culinary. Food is love. Food is learning. Food is fun. Welcome to Nantucket Culinary, a home for sharing, celebrating, and conserving the island's unique heritage. Events, dinners, and classes. Come join us downtown at 22 Federal Street on the corner of Broad and Federal. Come on.